name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Back when I was a younger student, like in elementary school and stuff, I never cared much for history. In fact, I found it pretty boring. It's hard to see, in many cases, how any of that old stuff applied to me then. And now, as I get older, I see how many of these things are, are relevant because it helped play a role in, in where we are today, how we, how we got here. And we can learn from history. So while I used to think it was maybe irrelevant and pointless history, it turned out that it was pretty helpful. Maybe that's been the case for some of you as you've gotten older as well. Learning random or even seemingly random historical facts is still interesting for, for some people, like when they're getting ready for Jeopardy or something. But it's much more interesting to learn history when you know how it directly impacts you today. So we can kind of draw a distinction between like seemingly random historical trivia and very relevant history that impacts us today. And to help, to help draw this distinction, we're going to contrast two, two things, the baptism of Jesus and what Jesus had for breakfast the day that he was baptized. So you might not remember reading about what Jesus had for breakfast on the day that he was baptized. It's because it's not there in the Bible. We're going to draw this purely from, from speculation. And I did a lot of careful and, and rigorous exegetical research this week to make this logical leap here. So when you think about Jesus and what his, what his favorite food would have been, we know that it was fish sandwiches, or at least I would bet that it was fish sandwiches. And we know this because he, he had picked something to feed 5,000 people. And what did he go with? Fish and bread, fish sandwiches, right? And then right when he, like he, ascend, when he resurrects from the dead on, on Easter, the first meal that the scriptures record that he ate was a fish sandwich. And he's proving to the disciples that, he, that he, wasn't a, he wasn't a ghost, right? So he had been without food. The first thing he runs to after he rises from the dead, fish sandwich. And then right after he's baptized, he's going to be in the wilderness for 40 days without food, fasting and being tempted by the devil. So he knows whatever he's eating for breakfast on the day of his baptism is going to be his last meal for a while. So we can assume then he probably had a fish sandwich. Now, you can disagree with me on that. It's just my guess. Now, that might be an interesting point, what he had for breakfast that day, maybe fish sandwich. But that historical point, or even speculation, it doesn't do anything for you today. Now, you might also happen to like fish sandwiches, and you might also happen to eat food. So you have things in common with Jesus, but his fish sandwich eating doesn't impact you today. It seems to be a random historical point or guess. Now, at this point in the church year, we've already heard a lot of true historical points in the life narrative of Jesus. The facts about the manger, the shepherds, the angels, and the wise men. 
all that is helpful history about Jesus. Plus, he is your Lord, your Lord Jesus. And so it should be especially interesting for you because he is your Lord. However, none of that history, the manger, the shepherds, and the wise men, and especially not what he might have had for breakfast, none of that directly impacts you today. Especially not with the same force and relevance of his baptism. Now, in today's gospel lesson, Jesus was baptized. We get the historical account of, of what happened. The, the very, it's very, very brief, actually. Mark just says, and he was baptized, kind of the end. Mark, or, or rather, uh, Luke's gospel gives us a little bit more detail as well as, as well as Matthew's, but Mark's is really short and to the point. We just get the basic history. Jesus being baptized. But what's happening there, and we know this is all happening because of what happens with the sending of the Holy Spirit and God speaking from heaven, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. We know what Jesus is doing. So you can picture it like what in Jesus' baptism, he's reaching backward through history all the way back to Adam and Eve. And simultaneously, he's reaching forward through history all the way to you and me today. And he grabs a hold of us and grabs a hold of Adam and Eve and everyone in between. It's kind of like an electrical current that as soon as it hits the water, it hits everything else in the water. So as soon as Jesus hits the water back then, it ripples all the way to Adam and Eve and also to us today. The baptism of Jesus does something to him but actually also to you and me also. So what does it do? So we have John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing, it says. And it says that all of Jerusalem, all of Judea are coming out to him, being baptized, hearing of his baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says all of Judea is coming out confessing their sins. So you're not going out to Jerusalem, you're not going out to, to John the Baptist in the wilderness unless you have sin, right? It's only a baptism for sinners. Now, there's some other people going out there too. The Pharisees, the scribes are going out there to mock Jesus, to kind of question what's going on. But if you'll note, they're keeping their distance. They're staying back, kind of looking down throwing their, their, their ridicule at Jesus, like those, those two old Muppets who stay up in the balcony making fun of whatever's going on. That's the Pharisees, right? They're not going to get down there and intermingle with those sinners because it's a bunch of sinners out there. And it's the worst that are included in there. The tax collectors, remember the, the turncoats who are, who are now supporting Rome and have turned on their brothers and sisters. There's prostitutes in that. In that baptismal water, the drunks, all the known sinners, it's just, you can see that, you can almost picture all the, the shame just swarming, and the guilt, even the disease. And you could describe the whole scene as icky. Now we're gonna, we're gonna sit on that word icky for a second because I thought about this when we're driving back from visiting family over Christmas. And you, you know how you, when you're driving on the interstate and all of a sudden somebody has to go to the bathroom and you're looking around and there's the most random truck stop in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, 
as you get out of the car and approach the bathroom, certain, certain fearful thoughts, this is going to be icky. Who has been in here? Where have they been? This place is disgusting. I, I don't want to go to the bathroom in this place, much less bring my children in here. What if my toddler crawls on the floor and puts your fingers in her mouth? That feeling you just got, that is icky. So that's the feeling swarming that water when Jesus is baptizing. Or when John the Baptist is, is baptizing all those sinners out in the wilderness. So as Jesus approaches the water, it makes sense for, for John to say, stay back. It's icky over here. The holy and the righteous should not mix with the icky. And you and I would probably do the same thing. We'd probably stay back. Watch from a safe distance over by the trees, but don't, don't get close enough to be associated with all that ickiness. Certainly don't get into the water. That's icky stuff. After all, think about it. The sin has been washed off of them. And if it's washed off of them, it had to go somewhere. And now it's in that icky water and it's gross. So I'd avoid that water as much as I'd avoid using a bathroom at truck stops because it's icky and we don't want icky on us. John wanted Jesus to stay separate, to remove himself from icky sinners, to keep a safe distance between what is holy and what is unholy. But Jesus, your Jesus, wants no separation between you and him. With all sinners, with the worst sinners, that's where Jesus wants to be. It's not just that he's taking their sin on himself, all those icky sinners down in the water, but he's also taking your sin as well. After all, we're not so clean, especially not as clean as we might think we are. We're just as covered in icky sin and shame, just as much sin in our past and our our hearts and, and words and minds. When he was baptized in that water, Jesus took the sin of the whole world upon himself. He reached through history like an electrical current and grabbed a hold of your sin and mine all the way back to Adam and Eve. He who knew no sin became sin, the worst sin for us. Now, just as his baptism did something to him, that is, he put our sin upon himself, our baptism actually does something to us. Now, it is not some empty ritual. And as pastors, we deal with this all the time. In my, in my relatively brief time at Bethany, I have answered so many phone calls for people just wanting an empty ritual of baptism because grandma's making us do this thing. And I say, well, what is baptism? And they say, they can't tell me. We just think the thing that we do with our kids. It's an empty ritual. It's like this rite of passage. It doesn't actually do anything, they, they think. We just kind of bring the kids, we bring the kids through it. And it's not some symbolic show of obedience either. 
Like now that a person is a Christian, they've made a decision for Christ, some say, and now to show an outward sign of that obedience, they, they're going to be baptized. But it's not actually doing anything. It's just demonstrating something. That's not the case. In baptism, just as something was done to Jesus, something real is done to us. First, all of our sin and all of our shame is actually washed off of us and into the icky water. It talks about it all over the New Testament like this, as a washing. Titus 3 especially, the washing of rebirth and renewal. Acts 22, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about washing sins away. So in baptism, Jesus reaches forward and washes you of your sin. But it's not just once, but it actually happens for our whole life. All of our sin for our whole life ends up in the water. Now, by the way, symbolically, this is why we have confession and absolution by the baptismal font. So that all the sin that we've had week to week, day in and day out, it is also cast into the water. So Jesus can reach forward and grab a hold of our sin, take it to the cross, and die for it. It is all for sinners, young and old, anyone with sin. Jesus wants it off of you and on him. That's why we also baptize babies. They have sin and Jesus wants it. How could we keep them from Jesus? And not only does baptism wash our sins onto Jesus, but in baptism, Jesus also joins himself to us and to our children. Remember, he wants no separation he wants to unite himself with icky us. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. United. In baptism, the Lord Jesus unites himself with you. He will have no separation between himself and sinners like us. He is God with us, our Emmanuel, today and every day. So it's not some dead, irrelevant history. But Jesus' baptism did something to him. Jesus' baptism did something to you. And your baptism did something to you as well. It joined you to him and continues to give you new life each day. You are united to Christ. Your Lord Jesus is with you taking your sin and shame upon himself and giving you his righteousness and holiness in exchange. Luther called it the, the great exchange or the sweet swap. He takes all of our bad and gives us all of his good and promises to be with you always so you are never alone and you need never to be afraid. Now, I know I've told this story once before, probably in Bible class or something, but it, it really is helpful for understanding why we're always saying, the Lord be with you. 
This was back when I was, uh, wasn't even a pastor, I was a, a vicar. As a vicar, I was in my third year at seminary. A vicar is when you're kind of training, you're kind of learning the ropes. And I was the youth guy at this church in Albuquerque and, and the senior pastor, the guy who's teaching me all the, all the stuff and how to deal with all the situations. He liked to go jeeping. So he was out in the desert of New Mexico, jeeping way out of cell phone range. And I was on duty that weekend. So I get a phone call from the hospital. The father to one of my youth had fallen off a ladder and was essentially brain dead and in a coma. And because of the nature of the family, my youth, my 18 year old uh, female youth was, was asked to make the decision on what to do regarding life support. So of course she called church and I had to answer the phone. What do you, what do you say? Pat, Vicar, can you come? Can you come to the hospital? Sure. Hang up the phone and called pastor 50 times. Never answered the phone. Left messages and I drive to the hospital the entire time thinking, not what am I going to say, but I hope pastor calls me soon. <laughs> so right as I walk into the hospital doors there, I get the phone call. He finally calls me back. And here it is. All right, Pastor Graf, give me, please, give me the answer. What am I going to say? What's the magic words that I'm going to say? And he simply said, just make sure she knows that the Lord is with her. And I'm thinking, that's it? <laughs> Can we do better than that? As he went on to unfold, what, what better thing can we say than that the Lord is with you? Because no matter what she said, no matter the decision that she went with or didn't go with, ultimately she was going to have doubts. The devil is going to bring his, his condemnation and judgment and doubts upon her and bring her all kinds of like remorse for whatever happened. So she needed to know that no matter what happened, the Lord is with her and is pleased with her, has forgiven all of her sin, removed all of her shame. He knows what he's doing even now in this situation. He's going to work it out to her good. He is with her. Now that makes a lot of sense. So I encourage, I give the same advice to you as you're going through difficult decisions. I know I've done it for many of you and I encourage you to give it to one another. Those words are seemingly so simple, are very profound. The Lord has united himself to you. He is with you, especially now in this new year. What will 2024 have in store for you and your family in this country? We don't know, but he knows and he is with you. He has joined you to his death so that you also will be joined to his life. He's with you in the dark days, bringing the hope of his eternal life. He's with you in your trials, promising that he's working it all toward your good. He has united himself to you. And because of that, God looks at you and says today and every day, just as he does for Jesus in today's gospel, with you, I am well pleased. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.